Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 2. Me and Fayetteville Lose Our Innocence. I had hoped to stay at Billy's house for the weekend, but that was no longer an option. So I tracked down an old married couple that I knew would be happy to see me. They were radical hippies with no connection to reality, but I liked them anyway. More importantly, they had a house, and I needed a place to stay. I sure as hell wasn't going to call Sue in some kind of hysterical and panicked way. I wanted to show her that I could survive on my own with my own friends. While lounging around on beanbag chairs and overstuffed pillows, the married couple, who were technically the grown-ups, so I trusted them, decided that I was old enough to try blotter acid. I let them put a tiny piece of purple paper on my tongue, and I thought nothing of it until they said, Don't worry, we'll take care of you. And that worried me. Was I going to need taking care of? But it was too late, and I had already swallowed the tiny piece of paper. And what proceeded next was a jumbled up mishmash of days and nights blending into what became my first acid trip. Somehow, someway, in the ripples and streams of pulsating colors and the merge of mountain and sky, I ended up in the house of a very cute guy who I thought was gay. He decided to have sex with me, and since I wasn't in a rational state of mind, I consented. He took me to his room, so harshly lit with overhead lighting that nothing looked pretty except for the guy who was bending over me, doggy style. I felt embarrassed because I couldn't get rid of the overworked smile that was cemented on my face. It was not sexy, and it was not natural. It stretched from ear to ear, twisting my countenance to look like a demented creature from Mad Magazine. It's unclear to me whether or not we had sex. I couldn't feel my body, and I only had two thoughts. Quit smiling, and why me? Aren't you gay? When all was said and done, I didn't know if I was still a virgin. I ended the night and began the next day swinging madly on a swing in Wilson Park, a place of fond memories, such as the food fight that we had on Gorton's birthday. He started it by thrusting his hand into an industrial-sized container of mayonnaise and throwing the sticky white glob of mess at Sue. 
She was pissed and covered in it, but had to retaliate. Her anger turned to fun, and it became an all-out war between the members of a family called us. At the time, I thought they were all stupid and crazy, but good times like this never happened in Little Rock, and thinking about it only deepened my disgust for that oppressive town. So I stopped thinking and let the whoosh of the breeze clean and clear my brain. The next night, the married couple wanted me to go dancing with them at the gay bar. They said I should go because it was drag night, the best night of all. I didn't know what drag was, but they mentioned dancing, and that's what I like to do. We hopped into their VW wagon, drove down to Dixon Street, and parked next to George's Club. We lounged for quite some time in the back of their van, which was cozy with pillows and resembled a Bedouin tent on wheels. They asked me if I had ever tried tie stick, and I had never heard of it before, but I immediately tried to picture what it might be. In my mind, I started with the word stick, and then tried to incorporate the meaning of the word tie, and then combined that with the ambience of the gypsy style of their van. But no, I couldn't imagine what it was. It sounded international like food on a stick, and since I loved when the grown-ups treated me like I was one of them, I said, sure, of course. Much to my surprise, they pulled out something that looked like a joint. I had smoked one of those at my neighbor's house in Little Rock, and nothing happened other than eating a whole loaf of bread with no memory of it. So I felt confident that I could handle this. I took two puffs and immediately lost the ability to speak. I had thoughts, but my mouth couldn't make the words. I was trapped inside myself and scared because I couldn't tell the married couple how scared I was, and they didn't seem to notice. The next thing I remember, they were telling the doorman that I was older than I looked. I could feel his skepticism, which fed the seed of paranoia growing inside me. The club was dark and cavernous and blurred with multicolored lights that were probing and flashing. The music was so loud that it pounded me into oblivion, and the strangely overgrown women were dressed in outlandish costumes of feather and sequins frightened me. At some point, I lost it, but I don't know how. I just remember lying on the steps of the foyer with a group of people gathered around me. There was some concern, but mostly amusement, and I felt like just another actor in this troupe of the bazaar. The doorman was one of the people hovering, and I felt so exposed as to prove him right. I wasn't a grown-up at all. I was a fucking little kid who was confused and couldn't talk, and as he suspected, someone who sure as hell didn't belong there. I was carried out of the club by whom, I don't know, and where I ended up, I don't know that either. I just remember sitting on the dark, cold curb, trying to collect my thoughts. 
As we headed back to Little Rock in the old white Volvo, I didn't share a word of my adventures with Sue, mostly because I couldn't explain them, even to myself. I didn't know if this was normal kid stuff, but I doubted it, and I couldn't believe what I had gotten myself into. As we made our way down the narrow, winding path of the pig trail, the mountain road that gets you from Fayetteville to Little Rock, my confusion and hangover expressed itself as anger, all of which I directed towards Sue. Once we got home, I realized that Fayetteville was not how I remembered it. Just like me, it had lost its innocence, and the naive bubble of the past had burst. But there was a lighter side to all the weirdness, and that was how cute the guy, who may or may not have taken my virginity away, was. He reminded me of David Bowie, and that made me happy. If I did lose my virginity, I was glad it was to a gay Bowie type, and not to a hairy hippie with dirty feet and phony enlightenment. The hippie culture was on its way out, becoming mainstream and passé, so it wasn't much of a surprise to turn on the TV and see hippies on the Donahue show. He was interviewing some people who lived on a commune in Summertown, Tennessee. Women with long hair and plain dresses sat on a couch, while a large screen behind them rolled film of their life on the farm. The footage was far more interesting than the conversation, and so that is where I kept my attention. As I watched with passive interest, a boy with a familiar demeanor rode by on a horse. My eyes tried to readjust to what I could swear was the silhouette of my little brother. My body started buzzing, and I jumped straight into the air. Did I really see what I thought I saw? I couldn't be sure, and yet I knew damn well. That was Tony. No one was home, so my first instinct was to run down the street and ask anyone I could find if that was indeed my little brother. I was shaken all over with excitement and trying to sort it out in my mind. What the hell was going on? Sue came over later that night, and when I told her what I saw on TV, she shared a secret with me. Sue and Gorton had an unexpected visit from Diana one day while I was at school. Diana was acting weird and evasive, and they couldn't tell exactly what she wanted. The visit was short, and she gave them cryptic messages concerning the whereabouts of Kathy and Tony. So much so that Sue wasn't surprised to hear that they might be living on the farm in Tennessee. She told me how cruel she thought Diana was and that she and Gorton would never give me back. The news of this lightened up a little smiley face in my soul and I finally got what I had been waiting for. The confidence and knowledge that I would never see that woman again. At some point in time, it was confirmed that Kathy and Tony did live on the farm, and the founders, Steve and Ina Mae Gaskin, were raising them. 
I went to visit, and our reacquaintance was awkward and unsettling. We tried our best to act like family, but we weren't. We had become strangers with shared memories, and the only real connection we had were the scars of psychological warfare that our mother had waged against us. As children, we had never learned to love each other, and it was difficult to pretend otherwise. I was given a tour of the farm and all the ways of communal living, and in less than an hour, I was anxious to get out of there. Something about the place unnerved me, and I was glad that I didn't live there. I needed space and freedom, and even though these people lived on the land with lots of room, their life seemed cloistered, claustrophobic, and rigid with rules. They had stern diets, boring fashions, and from where I was standing, it looked like the women did all the work. For once, Diana got something right. She put me in a living situation that was more suited to my personality. I could do whatever the hell I wanted, whenever the hell I wanted to. But as it turned out, that blessing would soon become a curse. Yeah. Uh -huh. 